This is an EWTN Newslink. I'm Teresa Tomio from Catholic Connection. The bishops of the U.S. urging the Supreme Court not to redefine a fundamental element of humanity by reinterpreting sex discrimination laws. The bishops' intervention came as the court heard oral arguments yesterday in a trio of cases that could decide whether federal workplace non-discrimination law extends to protect sexual orientation or gender identity. Twitter said Tuesday it may have mishandled an unspecified number of users' email addresses and phone numbers allowing that data to be used inadvertently for advertising purposes. And health professionals in Northern Ireland are writing to the region's secretary to protest a liberalization of the region's abortion laws, which the U.K. Parliament is set to impose on Northern Ireland this month, unless Northern Ireland's Parliament reconvenes. For more news of the Catholic Perspective, visit EWTNNews.com. I'm Teresa Tomio, and a call to communion with Dr. David Anders starts now. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. On the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion. This is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, those of you who have questions about the Catholic faith. We are here to answer those questions for you right here and right now. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please use the U.S. country code and then 205 271 2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. For those of you uh, who are in a uh, email mode, well, we're here for you as well. CTC at EWTN.com is our email address. CTC at EWTN.com. Well, we have uh, Charles Beery as our producer, Ryan Penny as our phone screener, Jeff Burson is on social media right now. He's plugged in and ready for you. If you want to send us any questions via YouTube or Facebook, we are uh, streaming live right there, right now, as uh, along with all of our other wonderful platforms. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you? You know what? I'm doing great, and I will uh, do something belated here. We couldn't do this yesterday because we were taping TV but we're not uh, taping TV right now, so I can say to you, happy birthday. Oh, thank you very much. Did you, have a, did you have a good birthday? Uh, it was reasonable. Yeah? Reasonable. I can't imagine you eating too much cake. My wife arranged some walnuts and figs uh, <laughs> geometrically on a plate for me. <laughs> Cake-ish. Cake, cake wannabe. How's that? A symbol of a cake. Yeah, sort of. All a right. cake token. <laughs> Very good. We're going to uh, lead off here with an email uh, from Mother, Father Michael. Father Michael is an Orthodox priest who says, and this is a follow-up on what you said yesterday, but he says, all Eastern Orthodox fully accept the universal primacy of the Pope of Rome! Exclamation point. He is absolutely first among equals and respected as such. However, the first seven ecum- ecumenical councils over and over, and many saints as well, 
condemn universal jurisdiction, not only of the Pope of Rome, but any patriarch, archbishop, or bishop over any other bishop's jurisdictional area. What say you? Uh, No, they don't. No, they don't. Show me, show me where, where an ecumenical council in the first seven explicitly uh, anathematize the universal jurisdiction of, of Rome. They do most certainly do not. Okay. What about... On, uh, on the contrary. They, right. they, they hail Petrine primacy. Ephesus and Chalcedon. Well, Father's opening statement says all Eastern Orthodox fully accept the universal primacy of the Pope of Rome. Yeah, but they deny his jurisdiction. I mean, that's the distinction. I they see. acknowledge the primacy of the Pope. But it's like, yeah, he's Pope. Now we'll go do what we want. I see. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, Father Michael, we do thank you so much for your email. Thanks for checking in on the show. Here's one now from um, Marshall. Marshall sent us a text listening in the uh, Columbus area, St. Gabriel Radio. He says, I have heard it preached from both Catholic and non-Catholic sources that, quote, if there was only one person living on earth, Christ would have still come down to earth and died for their sins. Now, is this form of discussion a poetic way to look at salvation? Back up and say that again. Sure. Uh, The quote was, if there was only one person living on earth, Christ would have still come down to earth and died for their sins. Is this form of discussion a poetic way to look at salvation? It does not hold up to the teaching of the apostles or church fathers. Please help me understand this. Well, the statement that you made that Christ would have become incarnate and died for one person if there were only one person alive is counterfactual. That isn't the case. There are more than one person alive and Christ died for more than one person. So you're asking a hypothetical question about what God would have done under different circumstances. Seems to me there is no way we can reasonably answer that question because we're not in that situation. Sure. And there's no logical necessity, there's no rational necessity that Christ become incarnate and die for anyone. That he that he did so for us is God's benevolence towards us, and it's been revealed that he did, but God doesn't reveal what he would have done under different circumstances. Okay. Oh, very good. And here's an email now from uh, Dan, who says, I'm currently taking a course on the sacraments and the required text that is in this class. You, you know, hang one second. Okay, All we're right. going to go back. I'm a little bit distracted because All right. All right. I was thinking about Father Michael's call, Yes. and I was looking for a text from the Acts of the Council of Ephesus in 431, where the uh, uh, Council Fathers specifically asked the Pope to lay before the Council his opinion that they might have the correct opinion to ratify. Mm -hmm. And they acknowledge him as the heir to Peter C. and the Prince of the Apostles. I'm just I'm just pulling one instance out of the historical sure. record, right? And another one would be in, of course, the Council of Chalcedon, where Rome's opinion on the doctrine of the two natures of Christ carries the day as having been delivered by Saint Peter. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Thank you for that P.S. Here's an email from Dan who says, I'm currently taking a course on the sacraments. The required text, though, is unhelpful. Could you please recommend a text on the seven Catholic sacraments that is in line with church teaching and the catechism of the Catholic Church? Um, yeah, so, well, first of all, the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is an outstanding source for reading on the sacraments. Oh, yeah. Another one would be the Roman Catechism, or the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Um, Father John Hardin, before uh, Pope John Paul promulgated a universal catechism, uh, composed a Catholic catechism whose instruction on the sacraments is very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, there's plentiful sources on the sacraments. Well, very good. All right, Dan, thank you so much for your email. And if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Got some phone lines open available for you right now. We are live on this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, so here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- 2883986 Back in a flash with lots more call to communion here on EWTN Check out EWTN's official YouTube channel Just follow the link on our homepage at EWTN.com or go to YouTube.com slash EWTN Watch EWTN's live shows or today's homily from the Daily Mass Click the upload button to see our most recent clips You can also find all of EWTN YouTube content by clicking the playlist button It's all on the official EWTN YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash EWTN Visit today Father John Ricardo. God reveals himself by repeatedly breaking into people's lives. He says to Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore. I want to make a covenant with you. I'm going to enter into a relationship with you. I call you into friendship. I want you to know me. He does it because he wants the individual or the individuals to know him, because that's why we're here. But he also does it so that they will help others to know him so that they will tell others about the one that they've met, the one who's spoken to them, the one who has done great things on their behalf. Because faith isn't private. It's meant to be shared. That's why he reveals himself to us. The saving deeds that we see God do in the Old Testament, which give us access to his identity and to who he is, all find their fulfillment in Jesus. The people you know and trust are on EWTN. What is the wind beneath our wings here at EWTN? Well, it's got to be the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. That's why we broadcast it every day on radio and television from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel. Do check it out tomorrow morning and every morning at 8 a.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio and Television. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Anne in Lafayette, Louisiana, listening on Christ Our King Radio. She's a first-time caller. Hey, Anne, what's on your mind today? Well, my question is, as a non-Catholic, if I wanted to marry a Catholic person who we've both been previously married, he's had an annulment, and I would convert, um, would I also have to get an annulment? Yes, thank you. Appreciate the question. You would, because it is possible for non-Catholics to have valid marriages. 
So the fact that you represent yourself as having been previously marriage, married sets up the question, was it in fact a valid marriage? Mm-hmm. If it was, then that would pose a impediment to your validly contracting a marriage if your first husband is still alive. So we would need to determine the validity of that first relationship. Okay. And thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Jorge is watching us right now on YouTube. Jorge says, could Dr. Anders please explain the differences between St. Anselm's view of atonement and St. Thomas Aquinas' view of atonement? Are they reconcilable? Okay, thanks. So... Uh, St. Anselm, of course, wrote a famous treatise called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became a Man. And he asserts that Christ became incarnate to make atonement for our sins by paying on our behalf a debt of reparation that we ourselves could not pay. That's his understanding of the atoning death of Christ. And it uh, it was historically significant because he expressed dogmatically and in a treatise, what is connected really to the rationale of the sacrifice of the Mass. It had been there kind of liturgically in the Church's heart in prayer. He kind of put it down on paper. And in doing so, it marked a break from interpretations of the death of Christ that had held sway in the patristic era, where a variety of theories were put forth. Not one of them was that Christ died in order to uh, lure Satan... Uh, into uh, attacking his humanity and then uh, ripping the guts out of the devil by surprising him in the resurrection. That was uh, Gregory of Nyssa's uh, theory of the atonement. Mm. Um, also the idea that he would just pay a, pay a ransom to Satan that he might release his hold on humanity. So different interesting theories yeah. floating around in antiquity mm-hmm. uh, about the atonement. I, I believe that the, the idea of Christ making a, a paying a debt of reparation as a sacrifice is implicit in the church's liturgical rites, but he's really the first guy to kind of put it down on paper. Mm-hmm. What does St. Thomas Aquinas add to the story? Well, alongside the sort of fanciful patristic theories about paying off a debt to Satan and these kinds of things, uh, the really robust idea of salvation present in the Eastern Fathers in particular connects it not only to the death of Christ, but to his incarnation, his his conception, virginal birth, life, teaching, death, and resurrection. Mm-hmm. We find the idea in St. Irenaeus, 2nd century theologian, earliest systematic theologian in the church, arguably, that Christ comes to sum up within himself the whole course of human history and recreate it in his divine person. And Irenaeus, of course, basing this on the thought of St. Paul, in particular, Ephesians 1, verse 10, that says... More or less, exactly that. That Adam was the progenitor of the human race, and Christ, by his miraculous incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, the progenitor of a reborn race of spiritual men, recreated in the second Adam. And that that's really more than theories about the specific relationship of Christ's death to the dominion of Satan. It's the Irenaean hypothesis that really predominates in the church's thinking about the whole drama of redemption Hmm. and the whole life of Christ. We find it reflected in St. Athanasius' famous statement in 
on the Incarnation, his treatise on the Incarnation, that God became man, that men might become God, that may become participants in the divine nature. Or uh, St. Gregory Nazianzus, who, in arguing with the Apollinarians, says Christ did in fact assume a whole and entire human nature. The Apollinarians thought that Jesus didn't have a rational soul of a human. He says, no, he assumed the entire humanity, because whatever is not assumed, St. Gregory says, is not healed. The idea being that by the incarnation and the union of the divine and human in Christ, that there is this infusion of the divine into the human species that permeates uh, through baptism, and the human person is actually renewed in one's interior life, made over again after the likeness and image of God. I think in St. Thomas Aquinas, we find... We find both of these points of view and some others as well. So Thomas does have the Anselmian idea as one of the articles in the Summa Theologica, his mm-hmm. treatise on the, uh, in particular, treatise on the life of Christ. But he also brings in another idea, namely the uh, what I really think is biblical motif that Christ, in his own person, merits reward, whereas Anselm's Anselm's theory is more negative in terms of, you know, we owed something we couldn't pay, so Christ pays it on our behalf. Mm -hmm. But Thomas also draws out the fact that, look, even if there were no humans around, the obedience of Christ unto death is not pointless, because he does a meritorious act. Jesus suffers courageously uh, the death of martyrdom. He's obedient to God uh, unto a cross, that just objectively merits reward from God. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of a different note from what Anselm sounds. And and the reward he receives is the gift of the Holy Spirit that he pours out on the church. You find both of that, those ideas in St. Thomas and a very robust teaching of the effects of sanctifying grace being united to Christ through faith and baptism in the sacraments in that renewal in our interior human, our interior man, uh, together with all of the gifts of grace, theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, the infused moral virtues, and all the gifts of the Holy Spirit that accompany them to renew the human person in the likeness and image of God. So Thomas's theory, his understanding of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, I think is just a lot richer and more robust than Anselm's. But it has elements of the Anselmian hypothesis as well. Oh, very good. Jorge, thank you so much for your question. We do appreciate that. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Several lines I, open at the moment. I love geeking out on history of theology questions, in case you didn't notice. I'm picking up on that. Very good. Here's our phone number, 833-8288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to Paco in Mexico City, listening on the EWTN app. Hey, Paco, how's it going there in Mexico? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you very much for taking my call, Dr. Anders and Tom. Um, I was, uh, I would like to, uh, to ask a question about uh, the history of the church. If you could uh, probably recall any time or any point in the history of the church that a pope was wrong or teach, was teaching wrong things or not, not doing things, but the, the teaching of a pope yeah, was sure. wrong. And what happened in that case? Understood. You know? Understood the question. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. So uh, I appreciate the distinction between a pope that did things that were wrong versus teaching things that were wrong. And let me say that there are more. there's more than one way to teach. 
you can teach by your explicit actions. I mean, excuse me, by your explicit words. Uh, you can teach by omitting to say something. Uh, you know, and you could you could you could give a very wrong impression by your uh, 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 policy pronouncements, so mm. to speak. I'll give you examples of all of these. Um, so the one of the earliest cases of a pope doing kind of squirrely things with church doctrine, Liberius, who's pope during the Arian controversy, signed a document that was kind of a temporizing document meant to sort of split the difference between the Arians and the Orthodox. It was not itself objectively heretical, but its purpose, I mean, it's so from a policy point of view, was to kind of obscure the nature of the argument and paper over things that ought not to have been papered over. And he did it for the sake of political expediency. And so Liberius has often caught a lot of flack for not vociferously defending the orthodox dogma on the nature of the Trinity. Did he, in fact, formally teach error? No, but he didn't stand up and do the job that a pope ought to do. Sure. Something similar happened in the case of Honorius I during the Monothelite controversy. His error was a little bit more egregious than Liberius's because he seems to have actively encouraged the monothelite heresy, again, for reasons of political expediency. He mm. wanted to reconcile the dithelites and the monothelites. Don't worry about the nature of the heresy. I won't get into that for the moment. But it was a politically expedient thing to do. It's questionable whether or not he personally held the monothelite position, um, but uh, but he was, uh, he was certainly weak-kneed about defending the orthodox doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the standout case, the closest we ever come to, to you know, really being able to form a judgment about a pope being personally a heretic on any particular topic, and, and there are nuances with this one as well, is the case of John XXII in the late 14th century. He's one of the Avignon popes. John had a personal, he had a private theological opinion that was in error. His private theological opinion was that the souls of the just at death do not enjoy the beatific vision. That was his opinion. And the the ordinary universal teaching of the church, I stress ordinary, there had not been a, a dogmatic declaration, no extraordinary teaching of the magisterium up to that point, but the ordinary teaching of the church had been that the souls of the just enjoy the beatific vision. Go straight to heaven, enjoy the beatific vision. John didn't believe that, so he was contradicting something that was part of the ordinary magisterium. And he promoted that opinion in policy rather heavily, rather heavily, I mean, and kind of onerously, to the opposition of theologians, cardinals, priests, bishops all over the Catholic world. He never formally taught it as a dogma, but he promoted it in policy and he preached about it in his ordinary uh, papal office. Uh-huh. What happened in the case of John the Twenty Second? Well, the, basically the whole Catholic world stood up and went, uh, "Pope, you're wrong," and they issued all kinds of formal declarations and pronouncements saying you need to correct this and clarify, and that's not the way it is, and so on, and you're contradicting the content of the faith and so forth. And uh, and the Pope backed down, and just my private opinion, doing a little, do a little professional theology on the side, guys. Didn't mean it to get out of hand. Never taught it formally as uh-huh. a dogma. 
and and that's fine because that all of that is consistent with what the church believes about the nature of papal infallibility. Mm-hmm. Church never says that a pope cannot personally make an error, but he can't formally teach it as a dogma, right? Okay. And um, uh, you know, there you can. Some people go, you know, well, did he was he really in error on this, or had it really been? Uh, should we really have considered it a dogma at that time? So you can you can kind of nuance the debate, but those are the facts of the case. Now, um, one thing that um, John probably was not, or couldn't have been. He couldn't have been a formal heretic. A formal heretic is somebody that understands objectively what the truth of the thing is, mm-hmm. and then dissents. That was not John's case. Okay. Uh, a material heretic has an erroneous opinion, but he doesn't know that it's erroneous, mm. and he doesn't know that that sacred authority has taught otherwise. Right, and uh, so you know John may have been confused about. The, the status of the traditional teaching quite, you know, because it hadn't been formally pronounced. Mm-hmm. What happened after John died? Well, Benedict Twelfth, the pope that succeeded him, uh, published a papal encyclical called Benedictus Deus that, boom, laid out an infallible all dogmatic right. teaching. Let's just, just hammer this nail in once and for all. The souls of the just, when they die, go immediately to enjoy the vision of God. All right. Very so those good. are the cases that I'm aware of of Squirrely popes doing squirrely things. Now, when it comes to you know uh, other policy errors and preden- errors of prudential judgment about the exercise of their papal office, uh, you could fill many, 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 many volumes with uh, you know uh, non-doctrinally related papal mistakes. Okay. Very good. And Paco, thank you so much for listening to us. Glad to hear from you in Mexico City. Our phone number today and every day is 28, what? 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Let's see if we can uh, get in a quick uh, answer here from Heather who just sent us a text. My son is an agnostic, and he asked me why, if God is all-knowing, he created the devil, if he knew beforehand that the devil would betray him. Thanks. Appreciate the question. You can you can make it even harder on God by a let's not stop at the devil. Let's, let's talk about every kind of human fault and sin. Mm. Why would God create the world if he's omniscient and, and all-powerful, for that matter, knowing that rational creatures would rebel against him and do evil? Well, because he intended to bring good out of evil. He, he, he intended to allow the possibility of, of evil because he intended to bring out of it some greater good. We probably can't know all of the greater goods, but we know one. Christ himself said there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need to repent. There's a kind of good in a repentant soul that's unique. Yes, indeed. Heather, thank you so much for your text. In a moment, we'll be talking with Jason in Rochester, New York. Line open for you right now. Grab it at 833-288-EWTN. St. Gerard Catholic Church invites you to join the Redemptors community in celebrating the feast day of our parish's patron saint, St. Gerard. Join us for a procession and mass on Saturday, October 12th at 5 p.m. and on Sunday, October 13th at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. There will be a special blessing with the relic of St. Gerard for all mothers who are pregnant or wishing to become pregnant. For more information, call 210-533-0161. 
Clark Cardis, colon and rectal surgeon and fellow in the American College of Surgeons, is proud to be a sponsor of the Great Catholic Programming on KJMA. He's a member of Catholic Charities Medical Advisory Board and Catholic Physicians Guild of San Antonio and provides care for colon cancer, diverticulitis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and those embarrassing lumps, bumps, aches, and pains. For more information on his offices in the Medical Center, Westover Hills, or Stone Oak, please call 210-614-0880. This is a Messy Family Minute from Mike and Alicia Herman. There's something unique about the love of the parent and child. Nothing can replace it. Your children will have many friends, companions, and peers in their lives, but they will only have one mother or father. This relationship is so special that we need to make sure we never take it for granted or allow anyone to take our place. Sometimes we get caught up in wanting the perfect youth minister, teacher, or coach for our children, especially as they get older. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, and we thank God for those adults who have come into our children's lives. But no one will affect your child as powerfully as you can. Parents, remember that the authority you have as a parent isn't because you're perfect or holy or even that you have all the answers. Because let's be honest, sometimes we're just making this up as we go along. Instead, your authority comes from the fact that God has entrusted this child to you. Step into your role with confidence, knowing that God will give you the grace you need to be the best parent you can be. For more encouragement and parenting tips, visit us at MessyFamilyMinute.org. Call to Communion here on EWTN. We have two lines open at the moment. 833-288-EWTN is uh, the number to call if you would like to get one of those lines. 833-288-3986. Oh, it looks like one line open, so better get busy. Here is Jason now in Rochester, New York, listening on the Station of the Cross. Hey, Jason, what's on your mind today? Um, yes, yeah, so uh, my question is... Um does the Protestant Church have um, any authority to? Uh, does the Protestant Church have any authority over the um, over the church since Martin Luther broke away um, so long ago? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Protestant Church, neither the church as an institution nor its ministers, have any jurisdiction. Uh, over the administration of uh, the sacraments, uh, over church property, over the over the persons of Christians, um, or over the teaching of the Christian faith, no authority delegated to them by Christ for any of these purposes. They, uh, the, the Catholic Church does not even regard the Protestant so-called churches as, in fact, churches, uh, because they lack essential marks of the church as such right they are they are ecclesial bodies they are they're gatherings of separated brethren who come together to perform spiritual exercises but they don't have any formal ministry uh ceded to them or commissioned uh, by Christ so that that's that's the basic answer to the question now that being said uh, uh protestants generally speaking have many of them have valid baptisms Baptize the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they become members of Christ's body, which is the church, the Catholic mm-hmm. church, but in a wounded and kind of separated and alienated way. And so something, that baptismal character, which is a participation in the likeness and image and ministry of Jesus, is imparted to them personally through their baptism. So, uh, you know, Christ is prophet, priest, and king. 
and uh, and we as Christians participate in his to a certain extent in his in his prophetic ruling and priestly ministry. Not all in the manner of a of ordained Catholic priests, of course, but in a manner that's appropriate to the, the, the baptismal priesthood of the laity. Um, and so that would be, uh, you know, that could translate into things like a Protestant father's authority over his own home as a kind of domestic church. Um, that's a legitimate authority, and it has religious overtones, and it's in a sort of quasi-ecclesial state. Um, it's, not a, it's not a jurisdiction over the church as such, over the public life of the Christian faithful, but it would be over his family, uh, over his own person, right? He has uh, he has an authority over uh, his own interior conscience, uh, an obligation to obey the commands of conscience and so forth. And and in doing this, he might, for example, stand up to tyrannical power in the public sphere. The king comes by and says, you know, worship a statue of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, and he says no. And 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 he's being a legitimate witness to the dominion of Christ over the public sphere in doing that. So mm-hmm. that that's that's a kind of remote uh, participation in the jurisdiction of mm-hmm. the Church and of Christ, but no public ministry commissioned to them by Jesus. Jason, thank you so much for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Kristen right now in Springfield, Missouri, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Hey, Kristen, what's on your mind today? Hi, Dr. Anders. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I'm calling to kind of follow up on that the question about evil. Why did God create the devil if if um, He knew what He was going to do? And your your answer made me wonder what the church's um, how how the church's teaching um, compares or contrasts with the Eastern uh, view of like yin and yang. I'm not even really quite sure how to word it, but it, you know, it made it sound like. You can't have evil without good or good without evil. I know that. Oh yeah, saying, thanks. I Absolutely, know. I understand. So yeah, the 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 Chinese concept of yin and yang is very different from what we're talking about here, uh, because the the Chinese idea of yin and yang these are these are uh, opposite opposing forces that are intrinsic to the nature of reality as such, and their interaction can can bring forth. Well, um, reality as we experience it emerges from that interaction. And they don't necessarily conceive of yin and yang as good and evil, but essentially opposite principles. Dry and wet, male and female. You know, mm-hmm. these these aren't good and evil realities. They're just, they're just sort of opposite, sure. sometimes complementary and cooperating forces. Um, and, and, they're, and they're both co-eternal with one another. You can't have one without the other. That's not the Christian understanding at all. You can absolutely have good without evil. You know, we in the glory of E, we speak of you know world without end. Amen. The the eternity of God, uh, over and above and outside of the created order, is wholly and entirely uh, and undividedly good without any admixture of evil whatsoever at all. And the life of the blessed in heaven and the the, the blessedness of the blessed Trinity and the holy angels. 100% infinite good, yep. no admixture of evil whatsoever at all. You can absolutely have e- have good without evil. However, you cannot have evil without good. Why is that? Well, what's, what is evil from a Christian point of view? Evil is, uh, the technical word, it's a privation. It is the loss of some form that a created reality ought to have. So... 
natural evil as opposed to moral evil. Let's mm-hmm. look at a natural evil. If uh, uh, you know, if a child were born, you know, with only with only um, uh, two limbs instead of four limbs, for example, missing legs, perhaps mm-hmm. that's not a moral evil. Nobody's done anything wrong, but we would regard that as a natural evil. That's that's something wrong. That's a bad thing. Why? How do we understand it as bad? Bad. The, the 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 absence of limbs would seem to be nothing at all. And you say, yeah, but he ought to have two legs, and he doesn't have them. All right, ought to have legs, doesn't have them. A good friend of mine is a quadriplegic, doesn't have any legs, doesn't have any arms. He went to an amusement park one time, and uh, on this particular ride, they would strap you down, and you'd pretend to be Superman and go flying. They would tie down your legs and tie down your torso, and off you went. And he wheels up in his wheelchair, goes to get on the thing, and uh, and they say, sir, sir, you can't ride. And he says, why not? And they said, well, because you don't have any legs. He says, well, why do I need legs? Well, we got to tie them down. Why do you have to tie them down? So your legs won't flap around and hit other people. He said, I don't have any legs, but I can hit any other people. They said, sorry, sir, you can't ride, right? And uh, <laughs> the, the non-existent legs were going to flap around and hit people, you know. Um, but there's a, even though there's nothing there, it's still a fault because you're missing something mm-hmm. that you ought otherwise sure. to have, right? So it's a privation. That's why, in order for there to be evil, there has to be some good that's deformed. But you could have a perfect form with no admixture of evil, no loss, no privation. So good and evil, yin and yang, not the same thing. However, what, what can we discern? Is there anything of value when you look at other philosophies, Eastern philosophies? Sure, sure, there's something you can sort of kind of simulacrum, right, that thinkers, Chinese philosophers and others recognize, you know, there there seem to be contrary principles at work in reality. Well, yes, there are. Yes, there are. They just don't have the whole picture. Okay, very good. And Kristen, thank you so much for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Try to get uh, to as many calls as we can today. Looks like Ricky, checking in on YouTube, Ricky says, a possible schism in the church is stopping me from converting to Catholicism. How do I know I will not end up in the wrong church again? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So that that I, I recognize the concern. I understand what you're talking about. First of all, I think that threat is massively overblown. Mm. Um, and uh, so I, I really don't think that's going to happen. We don't we don't live in medieval times and and administratively the church just functions very differently than in times when we actually have had you know really massive schisms within even within the latin rite so i don't think it's very likely um but even if that were the case if you study church history you know you have you know about schism i've studied church history i was church history brought me to the catholic church i'm keenly aware that uh, there have been times, and look, 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 14th century France is a very good example. We actually had a real schism, right? We had we had uh, we had a pope and an anti-pope, and at one point we actually had two anti-popes, so three people with the is, is claimants. Was there a legitimate way to determine the identity of the lawful pope? Yes, there was, but uh, there were clearly lots of people, especially lay people, who didn't have the resources to do that, mm-hmm. and and there were people who were you know, manipulating them for political purposes, and so they were affiliating with the wrong religious body, um, what's the state of their souls? Well, it's not their fault. It's not their fault. Right. And they're making a good faith effort to follow the church founded by Christ, and and this was not a matter of heresy. This was a matter of, of obedience to the Pope and so forth, uh, and figuring out who the right Pope is. 
And, uh, you know, so there are plenty of elements of truth and sanctification available to them for, uh, to affect their salvation. And there are saints that emerged out of uh, out of those communities, out of 14th century France, even though the majority of the bishops were not on the right side with the correct pope. And, you know, here's an important distinction. I need to understand this. We are... We are governed by bishops and popes. We imitate saints. And those those sets uh, overlap, but the but the you know Venn diagram overlap is sometimes small. Mm-hmm. We got saintly bishops and saintly popes, but we got a lot that aren't. We we popes and bishops govern us. We imitate saints. Now we're very fortunate when we have a pope or a bishop who's a saint. We don't know that until. You know they got to die first and get canonized to know that. But um, uh, and you become Catholic because you want to have a deep, contemplative, interior relationship with Christ, and to reform your life after His likeness and image through the sacraments. And you know it's not my job as a Catholic layman to to worry about the political administration of the church in any age. That That's not my job. That's the job of my bishop. Yeah. That's the job of the pope. It's not my job. My job is to guard my own life, my own heart, my own mind, my own family, and try to be one of those saints. That's and, it. and that's why I'm Catholic. I'm not Catholic because, look, you know, I, I love my bishop to death. But whether or not he's an outstanding administrator, or that's not why I'm Catholic. I'm not Catholic. I mean, it's not why you do it. It's not why you do the thing. Of course. We do appreciate that. Thank you so much uh, for your um, checking us out today on YouTube, Ricky. It is called a communion here on EWTN. By the way, if, uh, well, let, let me just back up a moment and say there's lots going on here at EWTN, whether it's on the radio network, the TV network, and, and there are multiple radio networks and multiple TV networks. We have things going on at the National Catholic Register, at um, you know the various divisions, Religious Catalog, CNA. There is so much going on. If you want to keep an eye on all that, uh, you could subscribe to Wings, which is our weekly e-newsletter. It'll hit your inbox uh, every Thursday morning, early in the morning, uh, maybe even in the overnight hours. You can uh, look at exactly what is happening on EWTN Radio, programs that are coming up you don't want to miss. Uh, check out what's going on at Religious Catalog, Bookmark, News, Events, Blogs. It's all there. Just to subscribe by going to Wings uh, at EWTN.com. Just uh, go to that that uh, homepage for us, EWTN.com. Uh, if you click up on the uh, on the three lines up in the upper right corner, uh, it'll take you right to Wings, and you can subscribe. So all, all we need is your email address. We'll uh, get you fixed up, and you'll getting you'll be getting Wings in no time at all. Back to the phones right now. Here's Chad in Cincinnati, listening to us on the EWTN app. Hey, Chad, what's on your mind today? Hi, thanks for taking my call. I was uh, on my mind was uh, the guardian, the doctrine of guardian angels. Just curious of uh, where that came from um, and yeah, where that. Thanks. Well, it comes to us from sacred scripture, and in Matthew 18. Jesus says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. So it seems to imply that that 
everybody has an angel that's charged with overseeing them, and those angels are in communion with God. And so, you're not if God's going to send an angel to take care of somebody, then by all means you should too, right? Hebrews 1.14 says that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Wow, how about that? Sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. In Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter shows up at the door after he's been in prison, and he's been miraculously rescued by an angel, shows up at the door of the house, and the people think he can't possibly be there because he's in prison. They see him, and they think, oh, it must be his angel. Now, I don't know why they thought Peter's angel would look like Peter, but they (laughs) did for whatever reason. Um, But uh, witnessing to that that uh, early church belief that people had angels assigned to their particular care. Okay. And we thank you so much for your call, Chad. Here is uh, Gloria, G-L-O-R-I-A, in Indianapolis, listening on Catholic Radio Indy. Hey, Gloria, what's on your mind today? Hi. I appreciate so much your taking my call. I uh, Every now and then I hear the term internal form. I have no idea what it does, what kind of power it has, and I'm just wondering if, if you, Dr. Andrews, you could please explain what it is and wh- when and how it can be used. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So the internal forum is the realm of conscience, the realm of conscience, and uh, it, it pertains particularly in the context of the confessional, and it's helpful to see the distinction like this. The external form, the public form, is is what we do in the public sphere where other people can look at us and see us. Mm-hmm. And the priest and the bishops and the pope govern the external forum. So, you know, if if uh, if you go to Father and say, you know, I I think we ought to start a, a book club in the parish on um on uh you know the Communist Manifesto. And Father says, I don't think that's a very good idea. That's not really a great book for Catholics to be studying in the parish. I think we ought to start one on the life of of uh, the little flower Therese of Lisieux. And you go, but Father, but Father. And he says, mm, nope, it's going to be the little flower. Sorry, Karl Marx is out. Yeah. Uh, guess why he gets to do that? Because he governs the external forum of the parish church. He's the he He calls the shots in the administration publicly of the life of the church. And the bishop does that for his diocese, and the pope has that kind of jurisdiction over the universal church. But there is another realm of decision-making. It's not about what book are we going to read in the parish, or what movie are we going to show on Friday night, or or which Eucharistic prayer is the priest going to pray at the altar. Um, it's, it's what am I going to do in the context of my own moral decision-making. Mm. That's the, that is the internal form. And this is very important in the context of the confessional. Because I, I have to know my conscience to be able to make a, uh, a, a valid confession of sin. I need to know what I've done wrong. I need to know what conscience has convicted me of. And does the church have any jurisdiction there? Yes, she does. The church does have jurisdiction in the, in the internal form. Again, especially in the context of the confessional. For example... The priest might judge, this is a juridical act, it's one that bears authority, mm-hmm. carries authority, the question of my contrition. If I go to Father and I say, you know, I, 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 I shot the mailman and, you know, stole my next door neighbor's uh, Amazon package, but I'm not sorry and I'm going to do it again. The priest is going to judge that I'm not contrite. 
and he's not going to absolve me. And he has that jurisdiction to pass judgment over whether or not I'm contrite. Um, uh, my spiritual director, under rare circumstances, I might, I might uh, bind myself to obedience to a spiritual director. For example, let's say I suffer from scrupulosity. You know, I scratched my nose twice on Tuesday, and that's a sin. The spiritual director says, it's not a sin, you're scrupulous, and I forbid you to ever bring that up again. Wise counsel on the part of a spiritual director. You think I'm kidding. I've met people who actually think that scratching their nose twice on Tuesday is something they should bring to the confessional. It's not. And uh, and then he's, again, making a judgment in the context of the internal form. But this is something that nobody else sees, thanks be to God. It's in the privacy of the confessional. Okay. And with thank you so much for your call, Gloria, here is Lisa now in Corpus Christi, Texas, listening on Sirius XM 130. Hey, Lisa, what's on your mind today? Hi. um, My question is, why do priests priests dress in their garments during Mass? Yeah, thanks. Because the holy sacrifice of the Mass is an exceedingly holy and sacred event. It is the holiest and most sacred thing that Christians do, and it is entirely appropriate. It is it is entirely appropriate that that activity be marked off from the profane world with with signs of profound reverence. Beautiful. Lisa, thank you for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, Gerard is listening in West Palm Beach, Florida on Ave Maria Radio's app. Hello, Gerard. What's on your mind today? Uh, Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, My question is um, basically that uh, I just recently found out that the Catholic Church or the Catechism teaches that the same veneration that one would have or the Church has towards the Holy Eucharist um, would be the same towards the Holy Scriptures, and that they're uh, same value, one one altar that the sacrifice is made on. So, if that is true, um, why is Holy kind of put to the side outside of the liturgy? Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, I would like to go back and review the text of the Catechism to which you're referring, uh, because. It would, with, without a significant amount of nuance, the way you stated it, I would have a hard time assenting to, because sacred scripture comes from God and bears divine authority. But you know, I've got a Bible here in my hand. I'm picking it up. This Bible comes from God. It speaks in God's voice. It carries God's authority. But it's not God. It's not God. Right. It's a piece of paper. It's a very important piece of paper with some very important stuff written on it. But it's not God. If I hold the sacred consecrated host in my hand, it's God. Full stop. Body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it, there's a different kind of reverence. The reverence of, of adoration, of worship. I venerate sacred scripture as from God, mm-hmm. but I worship the blessed sacrament. And so I, I should I should... I should treat the Blessed Sacrament in a way that is worthy of worship, as, as something worthy of worship. I should treat sacred scripture as something worthy of veneration as bearing divine authority. Now, it's interesting, if you read the life of St. Francis of Assisi, he had a profound veneration for the physical matter of Bible texts. 
and he he couldn't bear to see like say a page of holy scripture dropped on the ground or wrinkled up and he would go collect it and pick it up and flatten it out and 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 offer veneration to it mm-hmm. and that's unusual right but he had that kind of veneration saint francis did for the, the physical words and the physical matter of a Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an interesting example. Maybe we ought to imitate St. Francis a little bit more in that. Maybe. Appreciate your call. And let's go to Louie now in Round Rock, Texas, in the Austin area, listening on Sirius XM 130. Louie, what's on your mind today? Hello, Dr. Andrews. Uh, I was wondering, is a celibate priesthood, is that a doctrine, dogma, or tradition? And are uh, women being barred from the priesthood? Is that doctrine, dogma, or tradition? Thank you. I appreciate the question. Um, the the values that the discipline of clerical celibacy highlights are doctrinal truths. For example, it is a doctrinal truth that the life of consecrated virginity is an objectively superior mode of Christian life if that if that uh, consecrated virginity is consecrated to God for the pursuit of holiness and contemplation, right? That's an objectively preferable condition. And it's objectively preferable for ministers of the gospel to take up that state of life. Those are, those are doctrinal truths taught by Jesus and St. Paul. Um, but to actually enforce that in the form of a law, of a discipline or precept, binding those who would become priests, that's a that's a discipline within the Catholic Church that is relaxed in some instances. So Catholic priests of the Eastern Rites have long uh, been taken from the ranks of married men. There are some married men ordained priests within the Latin uh, or Roman Rite of the uh-huh, Church, uh-huh. particularly those who have entered as converts from the Anglican patrimony. Uh-huh. Okay. And we thank you for that, Louis. Uh, one just came in here. This is from Bill in Moorhead, Minnesota, on Real Presence Radio. What constitutes grave necessity, as mentioned in the Catechism, paragraph 1483? Okay. So is this about, this is about the, the circumstances under which a non-Catholic might receive the sacraments? Is that what we're thinking about? Yeah, the about? paragraph about priests giving sacraments to non-Catholics under circumstances of grave necessity. Yes, well, one would be danger of death. That's kind of big. Yeah, so if, if you ever want an, an uh, like the kind of catch-all for when you can dispense with a lot of canons, danger of death. So another example would be, let's take a priest who's been laicized, uh-huh. no longer exercises a lawful ministry within the Catholic Church. He's walking home you know, from the pizza joint one day and sees somebody about to expire on the side of the road and there's no Catholic priest with a legitimate ministry around. Uh-huh. The church automatically gives that guy faculties and he can go absolve that fellow of his sins. There we go. Bill, thank you so much for your question. Danger of death. That's the catch-all. Danger of death. Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do the program Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, and a best-of show Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. On behalf of Charles, Ryan, and Jeff, I'm Tom Price. See you next time here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Hey, y'all, this is Father Mitch Packer. Open Line Wednesday is next on EWTN Radio. Here's today's quote from Mother Angelica's Perpetual Calendar. 
Pride is at the bottom of all worldliness, which is the awesome desire that consumes people in attaining more and more things, more and more honor, more and more glory, of having the whole world revolve around themselves. Mother's Spiral Bound Perpetual Calendar features an inspirational message for each day of the year. It's available from the EWTN Religious Catalog at EWTNRC.com. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Hello, this is Father Ed Ha from St. Mary's Church in downtown San Antonio, inviting you to join us for our Public Square Rosary Crusade on the eve of the Feast of Our Lady of Fatima. This crusade will take place on Saturday, October the 12th at 1245 p.m. following our noon Mass. We are located at 202 North St. Mary Street between Houston and Commerce. That's Saturday, October the 12th at 1245 p.m. We hope to see you there. KJMA 89.7 FM would like to thank Dr. Stephen Planche and the Atascosa Vision Source in Pleasanton, Texas for their support in keeping our airwaves Catholic. Their vision is to provide an eye care experience that is like no other. Service to you is their priority. Atascosa Vision Source is located at 1514 West Oak Lawn in Pleasanton and can be reached at 830-569-8771 or visionsource-atascosa.com. Don't miss your one-time, one-night-only opportunity to see Love and Mercy, Faustina, in theaters on October 28th. Tickets are selling fast, but there's still time to bring your whole parish, youth group, or prayer group. The docudrama follows the incredible call of St. Faustina to religious life and the healing effects of this message on countless people around the world. This is a one-night showing on October 28th at 7 p.m., and there's three theaters here in San Antonio the Santicos Embassy 14, Regal Hebner Oak Stadium 14, and the Santicos Palladium. Buy your tickets at the box office or visit FathomEvents.com. That's Fathom, F-A-T-H-O-M, Events.com. St. Faustina, pray for us. Jesus, I trust in you. This is Life News Radio. I'm Jim Anderson. A complicated government situation has essentially left North Ireland without local control. British Parliament has a strange hold. Abortion advocates have taken advantage of the situation to impose a form of British abortion law upon North Ireland. Unless that government gets its act together, there will now be legal abortion throughout North and South Ireland. Liam Gibson of the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, commenting on conscience rights and abortion guidelines being imposed later this month, says new guidelines are truly appalling. It demonstrates just how ruthless abortion in North Ireland is likely to be. Nancy Pelosi is slamming states' rights to form penal law in the abortion issue. The Democrat from California told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution that anything less than unlimited abortion is dangerous. This is Life News Radio. Persecution around the world has manifested itself through the centuries, but it is worse today than ever before. Aid to the Church in Need and its donors have been there to help since 1947, never abandoning the Church or her most vulnerable children. Will you stand up for your faith and accompany our brothers and sisters on their spiritual journey? Visit churchinneed.org. churchinneed.org. 
In other headlines, Nevada law is now enticing people to sign up for the most gruesome and archaic death possible. A new early consent law explicitly normalizes death by starvation and or dehydration in advanced directives. And the work of the Population Research Institute is again at LifeNews.com. Jonathan Abamonte offers irrefutable research documenting the decline of both racial minorities and U.S. population. For pro-life headlines delivered to your email address daily, sign up at LifeNews.com. This has been Life News Radio. Thanks for listening to KJMA 89.7 Floresville, San Antonio. On the Guadalupe Radio Network in South Texas. Catholic Radio for your soul. Catholic Radio for your soul. And also streaming on grnonline.com and on your smartphone.